Good evening, folks. Happy Tuesday, and thank you for coming back and joining me tonight on Next on the T. I'm your host, Chris Mascaro, and tonight we have a very special show in store for you, because not only do we have three wonderful guests that we're looking forward to sharing with you, and notice how I'm saying we, but I also have my co-host from on the football side, our show Thursday Night Tailgate, Bob Lazari, here with me for the first time on the golf side here on Next on the T. So let's bring Bob right into the show. Good evening, my friend. How have you been? Hey, Chris. It's like we just talked the other night, didn't we? Indeed, <laughs> <laughs> we did. But this time, first time ever, we're going to have the opportunity to talk a little golf for a change. So thank you for uh, for coming and be a part of tonight's show. That's good, Chris. It brings me back. You know, I was a very avid golfer, really, participant up until seven, eight years ago when it was a horrific auto, auto accident and really curtailed my playing. But, uh, you know, I still follow very closely. Obviously, would like to get back into it. But uh, it's, a, it's an honor working with you, whatever we do, baseball, golf, football. What's next? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That, I think the only thing we haven't done together is basketball and hockey. So we may have to give that a thought or two here down okay. the road. But, uh, you know, Bob, you, you've had, um, I mean, you've been covering for many years the Travelers Championship up there and your nape of the vine up in Connecticut. And uh, later on tonight, we're going to be joined by the executive director of the Travelers Championship, uh, Nathan Grube. It's it's a tournament that I've been envious of you for years because not only do you get to go out and see some of the game's greatest players on a, on a wonderful golf course, but you also get the free-flowing Ben & Jerry's ice cream up there for the media. So uh, very jealous every time you get to do that, my friend. It's a it's a wonderful tournament, Chris. I've probably been going out there since the year 2000. Nota Begay won that year, and then of course the next two years were won by Mickelson back to back. But uh, it's been a great ride there. They improve that tournament if it's possible every year with the help of Nathan's leadership, and it's just an honor being a part of it. They treat all of us uh, terrifically, and that's why we keep going back. Yeah, no doubt, and. Uh... You know, you talk about the the back-to-back years of Mickelson and obviously Noda winning the first time that you were there. Other notable memories, Bob, other things that you've had the opportunity to see while you've covered that tournament? Well, first of all, you can't go into that uh, question without talking about last year and Spies holding it from the bunker. That was just, I've never been around noise like that, Chris. Never will. I mean, I just happened to be at that 18th green and the noise was something that I'll never forget, and I've been to football, baseball, and, and you name it, and just the roar was something to behold, and, and the uh, just the, the joy of the crowd was just incredible. That was huge, and of course, uh, there's been such great uh, memories. I remember, obviously, Bubba Watson, a fan favorite. I got to speak with him back in 2010 when he won. Uh, just a terrific guy to all in his path, and uh, Kenny Perry had the uh, a record breaking run uh, in 2009 that was a great tournament but every year it seems like i think there's been five or six uh sudden death playoffs chris uh within in recent history so it's it's been great and uh, the course is great the players love it because it's very scorable and uh again it's uh and and it's immaculate it's a great place easy to get to and one of the best attended places on the PGA tour yeah, all great stuff. And you mentioned 
Bubba Watson's win. That was his first ever victory on uh, on the PGA Tour back in 2010. So a lot of great things that uh, we're looking forward to getting into with Nathan when he joins us, and that's going to be coming up later on in the hour. We have two other guests that we're looking forward to also sharing with you tonight. And first up is going to be former PGA Tour pro Richard Zirkel. And Richard played his college golf at BYU, captained them to a national championship back in 1981. That same year, he won the Canadian Amateur Championship. He's from British Columbia, so I'm sure that was a huge win for him. Looking forward to talking about that. He also won twice out on the regular tour. He is now the founder of MindLink Golf, which is more focused on the mental side of the game. And folks, you know how we like to talk about that here on Next on the Tee. So a lot to get into when Richard joins us here in just a few minutes. Following him, we're going to get a return visit from product and development expert Michael Verska. Michael has been on the show a couple of times, going back to his time as global director of innovation for Wilson Golf. We'll talk about, you know, the innovations that he's seen so far this year, what he thinks might be coming up down on the horizon as well as, you know, what more can we do? Right. With the golf equipment, whether it's, you know, the drivers or irons or the golf ball to make it more innovative, to get more distance, to hit it straighter. I don't know. It seems like we got to be running up against the edges of, you know, what's possible or what's legal in the game of golf. But we'll talk about that one with Michael when he joins us a little bit later on in this half hour. So, like I say, we got a lot of great stories and information coming your way tonight on this edition of Next on the Tee. Thank you so much for tuning in and taking the journey with Bob and I here over the next hour or so. Before we get started, though, I want to remind you about our good friend Matthew Lawrence and his show Backspin Golf, which airs Sunday mornings from 8 to 9 a.m. Eastern Time. It's my regular Sunday, 8.03 a.m. Tea Time. It's broadcast on WLXG ESPN Radio AM 1300 up in Lexington, Kentucky. You can stream it live by going online to WLXG.com or by downloading the WLXG app. Matthew is fantastic, and it's a great way to start your Sunday mornings. His equally fantastic and four-minute older twin brother, Mitchell, also has a great golf show that marries golf and travel. It's called Talking Golf Getaways, which you can find online at golfnewsnet.com or over on Audioboom. He and his co-host, Darren Bunch, travel all over the world, and they let you know about great places to play, stay, and even eat while you're there as well. Again, it's called Talking Golf Getaways. You can stream it on golfnewsnet.com or over on Audioboom, and Mitchell will be one of our guests next week here on Next on the Tee. And folks, as you know, we are sponsored by the French Lick Resort. Let's hear a word from our good friend Steve Rondonero about the great things they've got going on up there. Play legendary golf at French Lick Resort, the only place in the country where you can play courses by two Hall of Fame designers on the same property. Our Pete Dye and Donald Ross courses offer two very different challenges. Experience them both and save with our Hall of Fame package. Our two historic hotels are unique as well. Cap it off with a fun visit to the French Lick Casino. Check us out online at FrenchLick.com. Bring a group and save even more. Play legendary golf this season at French Lick Resort. Yeah, folks, be sure to go online to FrenchLick.com to see for yourself how great a place it is and to book your stay as well. And, folks, you've heard me talking about Club Hub sensors over the last several months. It's the best portable shot tracking and swing analysis golf device out there. Other shot trackers tell you what happened. Club Hub's going to tell you what happened and why. Take the progress that you make on the practice tee directly to your rounds with the only device of its kind that can go on the course with you. I have Club Hub sensors on all of my clubs. They screw right into the tops of your grips. 
And I can tell you, since I put the club up sensors on my club, I've learned more about my swing and all the data surrounding it than I've learned over the 40 years I've been playing the game. Because not only do you get GPS distances to the hazards and the green, but after your round, you can look back at the images and the layout of every hole in the course that you just played and see exactly where and how far you hit every shot. Another GPS tool on the market captures that and lets you go back and look and review your round the way the Clubhub app does. It's available for Androids or iPhones, and the app keeps track of your swing speed of every club in your bag, your tempo, your angle of attack, plus you get a 3D view of your swing as well. And again, no other rangefinder can do all of that for you. Go over to clubhubgolf.com and order your set of Clubhub sensors today and enter the coupon code NEXT to get 10% off on all products at checkout. Again, clubhubgolf.com, enter the coupon code NEXT, and you're going to get the best GPS and swing analysis tool on the market for a great low price, and you're going to see your game in a whole new way. Please also check out our friends at the Bobby Jones Apparel Company by going online to bobbyjones.com. Their spring collection is out, and the shift in seasons is an opportunity to change things up layer upon layer. They've added some great details, fresh colors, new additions with genuine enduring character. They make style easy. You can find carefully coordinated outfits in a variety of colors and options by going online to bobbyjones.com. All right, now joining us here on the French Lick Resort guest line is former PGA Tour pro Richard Zirkel. Let me give you some more background on Richard's. He's from Kitimat, British Columbia, which is on the coast up there in the central part of the province. Played his college golf at Brigham Young from 1977 to 1981, where he helped them to a first or second place finish in the WAC Conference all four years that he was there. They finished second in the national championship in 1980, came back the next season in 81, and he captained them to the national championship, along with his teammates Rick Fair, Keith Clearwater, and David DeSantis. Bobby Clampett was also a teammate and Richard's roommate for three years. 2009, that 81 golf team was inducted into the Brigham Young Athletics Hall of Fame. 81 was a good year to Richard because not only was he a part of the national championship, he won the 81 Canadian Amateur Championship as well by one stroke over Blaine McAllister in a sudden death playoff, and he turned pro that year as well. That The year before, in 1980, Richard won the International Championships Tournament over in Morocco, among his other wins was the 82 British Columbia Open and the 84 Utah State Open. On the PGA Tour, he won twice in the 1992 Deposit Guarantee Classic and later that year in the Greater Milwaukee Open. 2001, he, was the, he won the Canadian PGA Championship up on the Web.com Tour. And in 2011, he was inducted into the Canadian Golf Hall of Fame. He is now the founder of MindLink Golf, which you can find online at MindLinkGolf.com, and we're excited to have him with us tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Richard, Chris, and Bob, thanks for coming on the show. Welcome back. Hey, thanks, Chris. Boy, that was a, 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 you've done your homework very nicely. I appreciate that, and uh, the, thank you very much for such a lovely introduction, and uh, nice to talk with you and Bob as well. Richard, I want to start by going back to your time at BYU, right? You came yep. into well, a powerhouse golf program there. They won the WAC Conference just about every year since 67 at that point. And you're stepping right into a program, obviously, with high expectations. Talk about your decision to go there. Well, first of all, my decision was I wanted to go there because I was following another Canadian there with great success, a guy by the name of Jim Nelford, who I didn't know at the time. I just wanted to be like Jim and uh, so I wrote the coach, and he declined me. And uh, so uh, later that summer, this was the semi after high school, I got paired with Nelford, and he had just finished winning the Western Amateur and the Canadian Amateur a couple times. He's about to turn pro, finished four All-American years at BYU, and I got paired with him. And 
he called the coach in the summertime and said, Coach Tucker and said, you know what, this Oakle guy has got some, he's got some moxie, he's got some talent. So the coach uh, allowed me to walk on. He didn't have any grant Nate, and he says, I tell you what, I said, he said, I'll put you in the dorm room with Bobby Clampett. And uh, at the time, I didn't know who Bobby was, and I said, man, you can put me in with Jethro or Ellie Mae. I'm fine with that. <laughs> and so I was in the dorm room with Bobby Clampett our freshman year and got to know him. And it was, it was just unbelievable watching how good this guy was. And by the way, down the hall from Clampett and I was Danny Ainge, and further down the hall was Jim McMahon, our, our freshman wow. year at BYU. So, wow. um, you know, and so as a walk-on, uh, lived with Clampett in, uh, for three years, and then Bobby turned pro his our senior year, joined the PGA Tour. I was the captain of the team and uh, won the NCAA at Stanford in 1981. So it's a lovely Cinderella story. It's one I talk about quite often for young aspiring players to go from walk-on to captain of the NCAA championship. It was a, it was a highlight of my career. So as you mentioned, you know, being there with Bobby and teaming with him, and again, you had Rick Fair, Keith Clearwater, guys that you not yeah. only played at BYU with, but then you guys played together out on tour for a long time. Talk about you know playing alongside those guys for so much of your golfing life. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, on our team, we, uh, you know, clamp it. Uh, myself, I only started to play well towards my junior and senior year. Rick Fair was a great player. Right out of his, uh, in our fresh, his freshman year, Keith Clearwater was probably the best player on our team. You know, we went into that, uh, we thought, everyone thought that, you know, when Clampett left, there went our, our team, but we went through that year. We started the year ranked number one. We never lost our ranking, uh, number one and then won the NCAA. And then the WAC championship, we played at, uh, San, at Torrey Pines. Uh, the Western Athletic Conference. We won by 50 shots, <laughs> so it was it was quite um, a feat. Or it was just fond memories of playing with such guy with guys that had such great talent, such great ability, and great people. And then we carried it on to the PGA Tour. Clampett was there, I was there, Clearwater, Rick Fair, and uh, and uh, we uh, we did BYU proud on the PGA Tour for uh, a decade or so. Bob, questions for Richard. Hey, Rich, it's great to talk to you. I wanted to get more about your Canadian background and what it's like uh, growing up and playing golf in Canada. Did you lose a lot of uh, golf time to weather back in the day, Richard? Take us back and uh, how you went about that. Well, I was uh, I, I grew up in a city in Vancouver where uh, I think, you know, we can play golf. It's like Seattle, a lot of rain. And you can mm-hmm. play golf all year round. I think, Bob, you're in the Northeast in Connecticut somewhere. Is that it? Yes, I am. Yeah. So I think your winters are going to be a lot harsher than mine. So you could play. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, the, what I really liked about going to BYU, I mean, and I'm not even a Mormon, um, and I wanted to go there because their program was so good, um, um, was the fact that you ha- were in winter weather more, most of the year. So you had to learn to gear up. I always thought that if you're in, uh, you know, Texas, Florida, California, you know, you're, you, there's no rest bit. And uh, I played other sports in the wintertime. I thought I was a soccer player in Canada, not a hockey player. And uh, so, you know, so it was a good uh, balance. And I, I'm, I'm a strong believer in having a good balance until until you're ready to go to the most serious level. And, uh, Richard, tell me about your first uh, appearance in a major. I believe it was 85 at the U.S. Open. Uh, must be an incredible experience. 
uh, bring us back then to the nerves, the everything. About yeah. Yeah. Well, let me just start my rookie year because I think there's some, there's a piece there a lot of older people may understand. My rookie year on the PJ Tour was 1982. And, and, uh, you know, we talk about the nerves. I call, I call it anxiety. Uh, and, and it's based on thought that trigger the, the anxious nerves. And, and I had a problem for the first six months on tour. I couldn't make a cut. Literally, I could not make a cut. I was uh, playing well, but you know, the anxiety was getting to me. And then in, in July, that summer at, uh, the Greater Milwaukee Open, as a matter of fact, I donned on, uh, in the first round of the tournament, a Walkman. And, uh, and I just did it. I never practiced with it. And I listened to music. When I walked off the first team, ever playing with Larry Rinker and Ronnie Black, uh, Tuckaway Country Club. And I slapped on these headphones and I listened to rock and roll. And I was shoot, you know, I shot, I was coming down the 18th hole, uh, for my final round, minus seven. I'm leading the golf tournament and all the buzz and photographers were, were there, you know, because this is quite a, uh, a radical move. And, uh, and, um, so after I finish, I signed for the 65, I'm leading the tournament and they haul me off the PGA tour officials. They, what are you listening to? And I said, well, I'm listening to rock and roll. Uh, they had to call PGA Boatwright at the USGA to find out if this was legal. And I'm going, Oh my gosh, you know, I'm going to get disqualified here. And they, they come back and they say, no, you can do that. So I got labeled this title on, uh, as disco dick. And it was on the front cover of all the, uh, the sports pages for, uh, for golf. And, uh, and I did it for a year out there and it really helped me get through that psychological barrier and that gap to gain comfort in, in high pressure situations. So from that point on, I was devoted to trying to figure out how the mind worked in relation to playing golf. So, Richard, let's fast forward to 92 when, when you win the Deposit Guarantee Classic in Hattiesburg, Mississippi. Was was that the turning point in your career for you, giving you the confidence that you could compete and win at the PGA Tour level? Yes, uh, yes, it was. It was a very important turning point. I remember earlier in the year I was at AT&T and I was very frustrated and uh, that I figured that I was on the, t- on the tour for 10 years and I really hadn't made any progress in my mind and uh, I was you know struggling with my golf swing and and I saw Johnny Miller hitting balls on the other end of the range and I went over to him and watched him and he was hitting these golf balls with one hand now I don't know if you know that Johnny's a left-handed dominant he's left-handed it hits right-handed and he's hitting these five irons hitting cuts and draws and these beautiful shots with just one hand his right hand's in his pocket and he's and I'm looking at the structure in his swing with this left-handed dominant swing I'm going wow that's perfect so from that point on, I went back to my pile over on the other side of the driving range of my pile of balls to hit them. And I started to find, figure out, you know, I wanted to get my left hand dominant because my right hand domination, uh, like most golfers, was causing me to come over the top and break my sequence a lot. And from that point on, I developed this skill. My uh, ball striking ability started to just uh, improve at a drastic rate. And then in the springtime, I won the Deposit Guarantee Classic that was opposite the Masters. And then later on that year, as I was gearing up for the Canadian Open, I won uh, I won the Greater Milwaukee Open, too. So two victories in one year was my best year, and um, it was a, a tremendous learning experience. Yeah, so, you know, as we ta- start to talk about the mental approach to the game, Richard, you know, when you when you were winning the Greater Milwaukee Open, and as you mentioned, 
the the guaranteed classic was sort of opposite the master so the field wasn't quite as strong as as a regular right. tour event but you come down and now you're going to you're you're leading the greater Milwaukee Open right you you're you shoot 19 under par for the tournament including a 67 in the final round and you end up beating Dick Mass by a couple of strokes but what was it like for you what were the nerves like coming down mm-hmm. the stretch trying to win your first official PGA Tour event well, it was actually it, uh, Mark Brooks was the guy who was not only the defending champion in, of the Greater Milwaukee Open in '92. He was also the 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 leader of uh, going into the final round. So Brooks and I were uh, um, in the final group, and uh, and all the way to the the in the last hole, Mark was one shot. Uh, I had a one shot lead on him, and, and Brooks happened to make a big number on the last hole. That's why uh, Dick Mast was the, finished second. But it was um, it was a barrier that I, I uh, you know I've had the lead before. I remember the first time I had the lead in in I think it was Kings Mill in 1986 after 54 holes, and I shot 79 in the final round. I, I, it was very difficult and very uncomfortable to be in that position, and uh, and I had gone through so a lot of trials and tribulations that a lot of people need to do to learn how to handle that pressure. And then, but uh, I was absolutely convinced. I knew that Mark. Uh, you know, he had the lead going into the final round. I'm playing with him. He was the defending champion. All expectations were on him. But the way I was playing, I shot 64 the day before, and I had a determination in my mind, and I knew that I was going to win that tournament before we teed off. Uh, as long as I had to keep my, my, my stuff wired tight, so to speak, my thoughts, and uh, and I got on a roll and, and got off to a good start and uh, proceeded to have a two-shot advantage with two holes to go. I, I, I three-putted the 17th hole, but uh, then topped it off with a, a strong par in the last hole when, when un- unfortunately, Mark made a big number and uh, got that great victory. It's a, it's a tremendous feeling to break through, and it's a, it, what it does is it really gives you a deep sense of gratification that all the sacrificing of all the years was really worth it. And, and it also taught me what a what you know how how psychological this game really is for every golfer bob more for richard yeah richard and uh, again uh i would just wanted to talk about the uh the, the muscle <laughs> shall we say the muscle on the tour these days i mean you weren't considered a big man uh back right. then these guys some of them are still not that large in stature richard but they're obviously these guys are stronger like any other sport with uh, training regimens and uh, nutrition and everything. I was just wondering, back in your day, did you do a lot of uh, working out? Uh, did you do as much as you could to get stronger and hit the ball farther? Well, um, I'm still a believer today that what makes the golf ball uh, move out, even with uh, Dustin Johnson, you know, with our modern players, is not so much, it's not muscle, it's flexibility and technique. And, uh, but I did, I, I did work out at the time. It was, you know, running and, and cardiovascular. But, uh, during my era, you, you know, we thought you should stay away from weights. I tried weights and they would tighten my muscles up and make it difficult to swing, but I didn't break through that barrier. But, uh, um, you know, uh, gosh, I remember playing with Jack Nicholas in the final round of the 84 PGA championship at Shoal Creek. And, uh, you know, Jack was long playing with Greg Norman. Uh, you know, they were hitting it, you know, 40, 50 by me. I was right on that average mark uh, of an average tour player, which was pretty good distance for a guy my size at, you know, five, 
five nine and uh, you know a buck fifty. Uh, but it's mm-hmm. a, it's fascinating to watch these guys move, and I think with today's technology combination of the uh, lightweight, the technology on the club head and the ball, that ball is going a long ways. And Richard, uh, you finished tied for 14th in the 93. Uh, the uh, that was the what was it? Yeah, it was PGA. PGA. And, yeah, and that was the Paul Azinger. Paul Azinger, yep. I believe, because he's a he's a Hartford favorite up this way, and I remember them referring to that. And uh, he won that in a playoff. But uh, tying for 14th, maybe on the surface, looks not too good for a lot of guys. But I'm sure that must have been one of your prouder moments as a pro in a major. You're, you're right. Uh, very perceptive it was. And, and particularly, you know, I played in, in uh, the Masters uh, the year before, and I wanted to get back to uh, from my win in Milwaukee, got in the Masters in, in 93. And I wanted to get, you know, that second chance at, at Augusta. And uh, that tournament, unfortunately, I missed my, the, the invitation to the Masters by a shot. And I was trying to grind it out so I could get back there and uh yeah it was I mean I recall I have fond memories I love Inverness where we played and uh, played the last couple of rounds with Hale Irwin and quite frankly when you're going head to head with Hale Irwin and and, uh, staying kind of in relative you know contention and playing the type of golf that you have to do and uh, when you get a guy who acknowledges your good play like Hale Irwin did to me those are very meaningful moments for you know journeyman player tour players like myself so it was you're right it was a it was a it was a great tournament for me. Richard a couple more before we let you go And, and and I read a blog post that you wrote a few years ago about the anchoring band and why that was important to protect the integrity of the game. And obviously that's come to pass. And as you mentioned, technology. Is technology becoming, you know, with, with what we're getting with golf equipment, whether it's the drivers, irons, golf balls, is all of that now risking the same integrity of the game due to the distance the golf ball is flying now? I, I personally think so. Uh, you know, it's a, there's a strong debate going on. The USGA made an announcement today that they're going to take on all this information to see if they're going to the, battle it. But I am in that old school camp with Jack Nicholas and Trevino and, and, and thinking that uh, the advancements in today's golfers is more to do with technology than it is, um, you know, fitness or skill. Um, you know, the art of driving the ball, other than this past week at the Players' Championship where accuracy was more important, you know, I thought it was wonderful, uh, and it allows a guy like Webb Simpson to compete. Um, but uh, day in, day out, um, technology is really taking, uh, um, taking, you know, filling the gap from what I think used to be talent and uh and uh happy to deb- debate that all day long with those that 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 uh, argue against it and uh, nothing like a good healthy debate but uh yeah i think it's gone a little long and uh and and i'd like to see a pullback on it so we can get uh, the skill back in the game and richard you founded a new company mindlink golf talk about what uh what you guys are working on well, uh, MindLink Golf is a mental game improvement method app and platform. It's a it's a method that I created in the last few years of the PGA Tour where I was playing that I had to use in order to break free, to get that freedom of anxiety. Um, everybody, you know, golf is a, a psychosomatic game, and uh, in performance uh, for even the best players in the world is very thought and emotional fragile. And, you know, the, how the golfer's mind is... Well, it's broadly misused and and universally uh, misunderstood. 
And, and so the, what you have to do is learn to detach emotionally from the results and what our, our innovative uh, app and platform does is it captures data that's key performance markers of every single golf shot. And those, there's two key performance markers. And in order to be successful or you have to assess that shot correctly, and that could be, you know, your lie, the wind, choosing your club, how you're going to hit that shot. Uh, and then you have to execute. So we collect that data and it creates a baseline standard for every single club. And then it also determines how many shot lost events you have during each round compared to your baseline standard. So this innovation, it's not data capture like, you know, fairways hit or greens in regulation or putt per round. This is called key performance markers and, and it's the information that each golfer uh, uses on the, against their own norm. And uh, when you put your attention on these key performance markers, then you will be able to improve them, and then you'll be able to take care of uh, all those pressure situations and perform to your very best. So, Richard, let our listeners know, how can they you know, stay up to date with the things that you're doing, follow you, whether it's online or over social media, and then you know, when you'll be launching MindLink Golf officially? Well, thank you very much, Chris. Um, what we're going to be doing, we're writing, we're, we're just writing the wireframe of the app right now. We anticipate the, the starting of the building of the app. Uh, we've got an engagement with a Bay Area software developer, and that's going to take a two and a, to a three month period. You can go to mindlinkgolf.com, our, our website, and they have rub of the mind podcasts on there. We taught, there's about 25 of them you can listen to, and we use situations of success and failure on the PGA Tour to understand how important the mind is. And uh, I think everyone, there's some good things on there that I talk about uh, that are current. And, um, and uh, you know, we, we plan on, we may have a name change in the future. I'm not sure what it is, but uh, it'll be towards the end of the summer before we commercially launch. Well, Richard, uh, first of all, thank you for taking time out of your night to, to come and be a part of the show. And uh, when you guys are ready to launch, I hope you'll come back and share more of your stories and insights with us and then uh, let us know how things are going so that uh, our listeners can get involved and download the app and uh, start using it because it sounds fantastic. Well, I, I appreciate that, Chris. Thank you for the invitation. Bob, nice meeting you guys and uh, you. glad to be part of your show. Well, we appreciate it, Richard. Take care. All the best to you and your family. We look forward to hopefully getting the opportunity to catch up with you again real soon. Look forward to it. Thanks so much. See you, Richard. That's Richard Zokol. And, again, it's MindLink Golf, and uh, the website is active, MindLinkGolf.com, and he does have several podcasts on there around the around the mental side of the game, so go online to check it out. Uh, fantastic stuff, Bob. It's, uh, you know, when you look at a guy's career that Richard had and being a national champion and then, uh, you know, getting some wins out on the, on the PGA Tour, it's, it's very impressive, and uh, I'm sure the MindLink Golf is going to be equally so. As you said, Chris, a guy that's had success uh, at college and on various tours. He's won on various tours. And, uh, again, a member of the Canadian Hall of Fame, Chris. So that's pretty impressive, too. we got guys like Mike Weir, Stephen Ames, uh, that you might be familiar with, also in that Hall of Fame. But uh, great guy and uh, very generous with his time. Yeah, looking forward to catching up with Richard a little bit later on this summer, hopefully.
All right, before we get to our next guest, Michael Verska, I want to give a shout-out to a few of our sponsors. And first, folks, every week here on the show, you hear me talking about Clubhub sensors, and it's really the best portable shot tracking and swing analysis golf device out on the market because other shot trackers are going to tell you what happened. Well, Clubhub is going to tell you what happened and why. You can take the progress that you're making over on the practice tee directly to your rounds with the only device of its kind that can go on the course with you. And again, I have Clubhub sensors on all of my clubs. They screw right into the tops of your grips, and I can tell you, since I put them on my clubs, I've learned more about my swing and all of the data that's surrounding it than I've learned since I've been playing the game, and I've been playing the game since I'm 12 years old. Not only do you get GPS distances to the hazards into the green, but after you're round, you can go back and look at the images in the layout of every hole in the course that you just played and see exactly where and how far you hit every shot. No other GPS tool on the market captures that and lets you go back and review your round the way the Club Up app does. It's available for Androids or iPhones, and the app keeps track of your swing speed of every club in your bag, your tempo, your angle of attack, plus you get a 3D view of your swing as well. And again, no other rangefinder can do all that for you. Go over to clubhubgolf.com and order your set of Club Up sensors today and enter the coupon code NEXT to get 10% off on all products at checkout. Again, clubhubgolf.com and enter the coupon code NEXT, and you're going to get the best GPS and swing analysis tool on the market for a great low price, and you're going to see your game in a whole new way. We're also excited to be partnering with the Ben Hogan Golf Equipment Company. All Ben Hogan irons and wedges are handcrafted one at a time in their Fort Worth, Texas factory. No mass production, no shortcuts. Now you can order custom-made irons, wedges, and hybrids at BenHoganGolf.com. They'll build clubs to your specifications and, best of all, charge you a fraction of the typical retail price. Check out their complete line of forged irons, wedges, utility irons, hybrids, bags, and accessories at BenHoganGolf.com. And folks, this segment of the show is sponsored by our friends over at the PGA Tour Superstore. This segment of the show is brought to you by the PGA Tour Superstore. See why golfers everywhere are proud to call PGA Tour Superstore their golf pro shop. Visit them online at PGATourSuperstore.com. Now back to Chris and more of the show. And now back with us on the French Lick Resort guest line is Michael Verska. Let me remind you about Michael's background. He graduated from Purdue University with his Bachelor of Science degree in Mechanical Engineering. While he was in school, he worked for U.S. Steel from 1993 to 1999. And in June of 99, he went to work for Wilson as a product engineer and later as a principal design engineer. 2002, he joined Adams Golf as a design engineer and later became the director of product development for them. He rejoined Wilson in October of 2011 as their global director of innovation and later spent time as their global director of golf R&D. He has a ni- he's 19 years of a veteran club research, design, and development. We are honored he is back with us tonight here on Next on the Tee. Hey, Michael, Chris, and Bob, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Michael. Thanks for ha- Hey, guys, uh, thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's been a, a little while, so great to be back on. It was great to listen to Richard Zoke a little bit. and. Uh, Thanks again. This uh, this should be fun. I'm looking forward to it. Absolutely. So, Michael, before we get into all the golf stuff, I got to start by talking a little baseball with you. I know you're a big Cubs fan. So, <laughs> how you feeling I about am. the start they've gotten off to? Uh, well, they started slow, but things are picking up, and uh, you know, it's it's you know, you Darvish is back off the DL. He's going to start tonight, and I, I, he's an integral part. You know, we obviously need pitching, losing Arietta, and uh, him being on the Phillies now, and uh, you know, I think he's a great pickup and. Um, you know, just need to clean some things up. You know, we strike out a little bit more than I think. And although we make some great defensive plays, there's some easy ones. So, uh, you know, I'm a big fundamentals guy, whether it's baseball or golf or work or what have you. So, uh, again, I'm a big believer. I like where they're at. I know they're not in first now, but 
I still like their talent level, and uh, I, I got to be there on Friday. I took my parents to the game. They were in town for my daughter's high school graduation, and I uh, got to go to the game on Friday and uh, froze our tails off, but thoroughly enjoyed the beatdown <laughs> of the White Sox. <laughs> so you got you got Rizzo and Hayward off to slow starts. Jose Quintana, I'm sure, not off to the start that you were hoping for from him. Do you think those guys are going to be able to turn things around, or are you expecting some trades to happen before the All-Star break? Uh, well, I mean, they're talking about Machado. Uh, you know, obviously picking up somebody like Manny would, you know, change a lot of things. And uh, if if any of those rumors are true, when you have a chance to get, you know, arguably a top five player, uh, I think you have to do those. And uh, but I, I mean, I, I really do like where they're at. They've, they've got a great nucleus. Um, you know, Chris Bryant's going well. Uh, Javi Baez, when when he makes contact, does well. He, there's still never a pitch he doesn't like, and he doesn't swing at. But <laughs> there's a lot of good things going on. And uh, if trades happen, I just hope they they uh, not to use another uh, baseball cliche. But hope they swing for the fences and uh, go after some big talent. Because really, except for maybe some bullpen help, uh, I, I really do like where they're at. All right, Michael. Let's uh, let's talk some golf and. Uh... There have been some exciting technology advances with equipment over over the last year or so since you know you and I spoke. You got Callaway out with their jailbreak technology with their Epic driver. Now the Rogue driver, TaylorMade has has got the twist face going on with their drivers. What do you think about what you're seeing from the major manufacturers, and and where do you think the uh, driver technology has the opportunity to go from here? Well, I think there's a, a couple companies who are really doing well. I, I mean, looking at uh, looking at the product lines right now, I'm really impressed with what Callaway's been doing. Um, you know, really top to bottom in all their products. Uh, certainly, jailbreak technology really was game changing, and how they altered the the flex of the crown. I, I really like what Cobra's doing. Uh, they're a much smaller R&D team, but I've really been impressed with them. Uh, TaylorMade obviously is has uh, rebounded well and are doing some nice things with Twist Face. Um, they've, they've had a tremendous success in the PGA Tour this year, um, TaylorMade has. So, you know, those three especially, I think, continue to innovate, uh, continue to do well. A company like PXG has uh, it, really changed the industry. I mean, they're, for the price they're selling for, they seem to be doing very well. Uh, they've really changed, you know, the outlook for consumers on what they what what the value of a golf club is. And when you do bring new technologies, things that are really game-changing, things that are truly different, um, golfers have shown they're willing to pay for that. So, uh, you know, those are four companies, uh, not that others aren't doing well, but uh, I think it really kind of shined, in my opinion, uh, because of innovation, because their dedication to doing things different, doing things new, um, and, and trying things that may or may not be intuitive, uh, but, but then explaining them well so consumers can understand them when they go into a PGA Tour Superstore, which I know is a sponsor of yours, a bunch of good friends who, who work there, so I'll give them a plug. Um, you know, when you go into a place like that or, you know, go talk to your local pro, they can explain it in a sentence or two and you, oh, I understand how that can help my game. So, uh, there are some really good things in innovation. I don't see it slowing down. Um, you know, it, the golf industry is highly competitive and if you're a company that does slow down, uh, you're a company that's going to lose share in a hurry. So, Michael, quickly, I just want to build off of what you just said with respect to PXG. You said that they're changing the the industry. Is it just changing the industry because of the price point and finding that you know golfers, some you know avid golfers, are willing to pay the higher price for for their equipment, or are they changing it in some other way? I think it's threefold. One, the price, um, and that's going to open some doors for other companies to step in with 
um, products that maybe there was a prototype before, but they were just afraid to sell because they didn't think people would spend that much money. So there could be, you know, there, I think there could be some new technology coming from other companies going, wow, now maybe we can afford this. Uh, two is just there's what they're doing from selling. They're not selling uh, in any stores. You've got to go get set 100%. Uh, so if you, you know, if you're going to get a PXG golf club, you know without question uh, that you are going to come out of there being fit with the right shaft, the right loft, uh, the right weight, um, the right grip for you, and, and everything goes with it. I know a few of the fitters that they've got positioned around the U.S. I know one of their guys uh, in Europe who does it, all very knowledgeable, uh, all the ones that I'm aware of who have years of golf experience. Most of them are good players, if not former club pros. Um, so that's the other thing. And then three, uh, you know, they're, they're, you know, they're launching product when it's ready. Um, you know, they, they don't have to sell on a yearly selling cycle. So, you know, they may go three years between products, so they may launch a new product in six months. Uh, because of the way they're selling, that, that gives their R&D team and, and their um, production, you know, ability to do some things a little bit different because they, I'm sure they have internal timelines, um, but at least uh, it looks like they're launching when ready. And uh, which is which is a great way, and I really think that will benefit consumers. And we'll see if that starts trickling into the major OEMs who who sell uh, in stores and and not they certainly fit, but in in a different manner. So again, technology, the innovation they're bringing, the way they're selling, how they're doing that, uh, and then their selling cycle. And I think they're all potentially game changing. Bob, questions for Michael. And Michael, I know you're a very proud Purdue Boilermaker engineer, and you went to work into the steel industry right out of college. And I was wondering, it might seem like a stupid question, but it, could you have done what you do now without that background in that industry, Michael? Uh, I, you know, that's a tough question. Obviously, I lived that life, but I, I will say it gave me a great foundation. And the reason it was a great foundation, I learned all about metals and, and how it was made and and really understanding the difference between a forging and a cast product and understanding about, you know, all the nerds will love this, you know, martensitic steel and understanding what grain structure means. Um, that, that all engineers get in a course, and, you know, you might sit through a couple of weeks of it in school, but it's different when you live it for six years. Uh, when you talk to people who've worked in steel for, for 30 or 40 years, when you go design irons and putters um, and, and metal woods, obviously titanium is a little different, but it still gives you a great background. So, I am very proud and happy with how I started and um, the, the, the good base that it gave me. So there's certainly guys who are great club designers and great engineers in the industry who don't have that. But uh, for me, I, I, I love that as a launching pad. And I know, Michael, you did a lot of work I was reading with uh, when you work with Adams uh, on hybrid irons. A lot of us uh, mm -hmm. up here are used to hybrid uh, vehicles up here in the Northeast. <laughs> but tell our uh, listeners, some of them that aren't familiar, what, what are hybrid irons and hybrid clubs to begin with? Yeah, so that was really revolutionary back at the time and uh, still, still uh, bodes well for the industry. So my first project at, at Adams was called the Adams Idea Set. That was the first fully integrated set where there was irons matched with a hybrid. So you'd get two irons, excuse me, two hybrids, uh, with a, with a basically equivalent to a three and a four, and then maybe a five iron through your pitching wedge. Back then sets were three through uh, pitching wedge have kind of evolved from, from four to gap wedge in most. And the reason why that was game changing is the golf ball was changing at that time. That was really when golf balls were going to solid core. Um, that's also the time that um, launch monitors became prevalent. So what golfers found very quickly is as the ball changed, if you did, if you were a very high swing speed player, you couldn't get your three iron off the ground. And most likely the longest iron in your bag was a five or a six iron. 
Um, and, and people didn't know that. Uh, but they started to find that out as they started to get fit. They started to see on launch monitors. Um, and, and one of the reasons that the golf ball really, the spin uh, was reduced on a golf ball tremendously when it went from a wound ball to a solid core ball. So the hybrids brought some spin in a good way back into long iron replacements. The other great thing about them is they were much more forgiving at a higher MOI, have a lower center of gravity, which for really every golf on earth, including tour players, um, up to the highest handicap is going to be a benefit. So it was really a great time in the industry where you kind of had these things coming together where golfers understood a little bit more how far they hit their irons, uh, understood what launch angle, ball speed, and spin rate. So for the first time in their lives, uh, an average golfer could walk into a store and get on a launch monitor and find out, oh, my gosh, I can hit my six iron the farthest or my five iron the farthest, not this three and the four. Uh, and that, you know, that really started the joke is, you know, what do we have your three iron for to punch out from under trees? Because people finally realized, wow, this is a good golf club for me. But they bought a hybrid to replace it. It brought distance, brought trajectory back in their game. So, Michael, I guess all the, you know, technology and, and the things and advancements in the game, whether it's, you know, with the equipment or the golf ball, with respect to what's legal on tour, how much, how much better can equipment get with respect to distance before we start getting outside of what I thought was supposed to be legal for distance, <laughs> MOI, and that sort of thing? Well, I, I mean, so there, that's, that's, there's a, there's a, that's a big question, obviously, because there's, um, you know, the, the only real distance rule for from an equipment standpoint is on the golf ball. Uh, there's there's a limit the ball speed can go. There's a limit the distance it can go. Uh, from a driver perspective, there's limits on the face flex, the amount of, amount of uh, the face can flex, which is called uh, CT or characteristic time is how it's measured, and then MOI. So you get all that together, um, you know, and that's what happens. You know, I think when the you know, the USJ launched their their new distance initiative today. Uh, looking for public comments and, and feedback and even pub independent studies, which I think is wonderful. Uh, hopefully they keep that openness and transparency through this process. But you know, when you look at the distance, you know, it, it's guys like Tony Finau and Bubba Watson and Gary Wooden. These are big human beings, um, you know, who are 6'3", 6 6 uh, They're using drivers that are in excess of 45 inches. They can get the weight down where they want it, and they get in the launch monitor, and it can perfectly match their driver to their golf ball. So, you know, when you're talking about distance and legality, um, you know, just when you think, I think I, I checked a, a day or two ago, there, I believe there's over 50 players right now on the PGA Tour averaging over 300 yards a drive. Now, interestingly, there's a bunch of data out, including from the USJ, that says the average golfer, um, is, I think it was 209. Um, so there, there's this massive disparity of, of, you know, 100 yards from the average golfer to even the 50th guy on the PGA Tour. So um, when we talk about distance being an issue, even for good amateurs, I don't think that's true. I think it's, you know, an issue for the very elitist players at the top of their game. Um, how to rule that? Uh, you know, there, there's there's lots of things to do. Is it a ball rollback? Do the club heads need to be smaller, which is something that, uh, that no one's talking about. You know, if you make the club head smaller, take the MOI down, um, and, and balls would, would inherently curve more, would that, you know, slow down the kind of bomb and gouge type swing? So there's a lot of ways to get there. Obviously, I have no idea what the USJ's plans are. Um, but I think it's interesting to, to think about what it is and talk about things besides let's slow the golf ball down. So what I, we don't want to do, I, I love golf. I love going out and play with friends and, and on weekends and weeknights. 
uh, with guys who are, you know, plumbers and architects and lawyers, and uh, none of them complain about the golf ball going too far. So, Michael, where, where do we go from here? Where, what do you think is, is the next big innovation or the next big thing with respect to uh, a golf equipment? Well, I, I think we're starting to see it now. Is, is Again, you can look at a company like Callaway, look at a company like PXG, um, where they are taking the price reins off. And uh, you know, there's been many prototypes over my 19 years where we went, boy, this is really cool. Um, we, we just can't sell it. There's no one on earth who will buy it. That's gone now. So I, I think you're going to start to see things that are, uh, that are more multi-material where you're mixing three, four, maybe even five materials to truly maximize every gram that you can put into a head. Um, you know, whether it's thinning the face down and, and putting some sort of structure behind it, uh, whether it's putting, uh, you know, a rubber-based or a polymer-based material uh, that you can really mold with tungsten and, and other uh, heavy weights to, to increase MOI and put the weight exactly where you want it. You can really fine-tune spin. So I, I think that's the next step is being able to fit and, and fit like we do now, but because of the higher price, be able to modify CGs even more. Obviously, Kayla made sort of a wonderful job uh, with their adjustable weights and, and Callaway and several other companies and some of the products I did as well. Um, but with the added cost, you can do some things to even fine-tune it more, make it more personal. Um, and I think that that fitting game, which the, the tour players already get and consumers have gotten a taste of, uh, could really step up. But, player, but consumers are going to have to be willing to pay for that. Uh, and, again, it's certainly shown a segment of the golf population has. Um, uh, you know, but with everything, there's, there's going to be people who can't afford that. And we just, I just hope that um, you know, they still love the game and get out and play, even though there might be that little bit of separation from equipment. Um, as that trend continues. So we're looking at $1,000 drivers potentially? Uh, well, yeah, unquestionably, yes. I mean, there, there's been $1,000 drivers in Japan for some time. Now, you can argue whether or not um, the, the, the reason those were $1,000 um, was due to performance or due to, you know, things like paint and having gold trim and those types of things. Um, but with the ability... To, to do different things and add different materials and different manufacturing processes, uh, yeah, I think we're going to start seeing more seven, eight, nine hundred thousand dollar drivers, uh, and then it's really going to get important to fit um, because for, for some players that driver will be better, uh, but there are there's always going to be a group of players where it's not, and I think that's that's where golfers are going to need to go. Okay, I'm now hitting my driver two thirty two. I go get fit, this driver's 252. That 20 yards is worth $1,000. Boy, if it's 235, that three yards probably isn't worth $1,000. So golfers, because of the knowledge they have, the ability to go online and find numerous uh, sites that test drivers, they should have a pretty good idea um, of what they're looking for going in. can hit two or three of them on a launch monitor with a, with a qualified professional, hopefully a PGA professional, uh, and then truly know is this better for me? Is this worth the expenditure? And if it is, by all means, you know, enjoy this great game, play better, hit it farther. Um, that's why we go out. That's why so many of us are passionate about this game is because we want to be our best. Michael, before we let you go, let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with uh, all the great things you're doing, and uh, whether it's online or over social media? Yeah, by all means. Uh, Twitter is, is my favorite. I'm also on Facebook and Instagram. I, I certainly check those and post, but 
Uh, Twitter is my favorite. I, I love that vehicle. So it's uh, at the golf man, the letter V, the word golf, and the letter man. Excuse me, and the word man. I'm on there frequently. I uh, I do all that I can to answer every question. Uh, so if anybody's got one, by all means, uh, fire away. I'm happy to make that public. Uh, I'd love to share my knowledge with other people who are passionate about this great game, golf. But I'm also willing to talk some baseball and cars, too. But golf's number one. There you go. Michael, you're fantastic. Thank you so much for taking time out of your night to come back and be a part of the show. Always great having you here. Hope you'll come back and do it again much sooner next time because uh, I always, uh, always learn something when you join me. Chris, I appreciate it, Bob. Great to talk to you. And, uh, yeah, let me know. I'm, uh, I'm always going to come talk with great people. <laughs> Thank you, Michael. Take care. All the best to you and your family, my friend. Good night, Michael. Thanks. For yep, bye-bye. And it's Michael Verskan. It's at VGolfMan on Twitter. And, uh, Bob, when you look at a guy who's been around the industry 19 years, he has certainly seen – Right, the the growth of the golf industry and and from small head drivers, right, you back when they were still wood, uh, to uh, to what we've got now, uh, it's it's amazing the transformation the golf uh, golf equipment and the golf balls have gone through, and Michael's been a part of it at every level. And you can tell he's a Purdue grad, Chris, and an amazingly intelligent guy who's got to stay on top of all this technology on a daily basis. So uh, it's a pleasure to speak with him. All right, before we get to our next guest, Nathan Groob, I want to give a shout-out to a couple more of our sponsors. First, over at Par Bar. Energy and focus on the course are essential, whether you're playing you know, out on tour in your club championship or just your weekend four ball with your buddies. Par Bar is the golfer's nutritional bar that can help you with both energy and focus. Eat some before going to the first tee and the rest every three holes until it's finished, and you're going to play with more energy and focus to win. Par Bar was developed by a lifelong golfer and a food scientist to help all golfers play their best. Go online to parbargolf.com and order yours today. We're also proud to be partnering with Russ Holden and the folks over at Caddy for a Cure. One of the most unique opportunities in the world of professional golf is available to you through Caddy for a Cure. Spend a day inside the ropes with one of the world's best players as their caddy. It's a fantastic way to have the time of your life while supporting our wounded service members and Fanconi Anemia. You're going to get to walk side-by-side -side with your tour player experiencing professional golf as an insider. And in addition to the amazing experience you're going to have, you're going to get a fantastic gift package from Caddy for a Cure, which includes Under Armour logoed apparel and an eyewear package, a tour-grade caddy bib suitable for autographs and framing, a tin cup ball marking gift, chef's cut real jerky, and professional photographs from your day. Go online to caddyforacure.com. That's C-A-D-D-Y-F-O-R-A-C-U-R-E, caddyforacure.com, to learn more. All right, now joining us here on the French Lick Resort guest line is Nathan Groob. Let me give you some background on Nathan. He graduated from Auburn University with a degree in mass communications, decided golf was going to be his thing, and he became a PGA teaching professional. He was an instructor at the Robert Trent, Robert Trent Jones Golf Trail Academy of Golf from 1996 to 1999. He then became the tournament director at the Southern Farm Bureau Classic and the executive director of the First Tee of Greater Birmingham. 
In March of 2005, he became the tournament director for the Travelers Championship, which is coming up next month, June 18th to 24th at TPC River Highlands at the uh, golf course there up in Cromwell, Connecticut. And if you're trying to remember, as Bob said at the beginning of the show, who won the tournament last year, let me refresh your memory. Jordan Spieth pitched in from the bunker in sudden death and did the chest bump with his caddy Michael Greller when he defeated Daniel Berger in a playoff, which may be the most fun ending to a golf tournament ever. And we're excited Nathan is joining us here tonight on Next on the Tee. Hey, Nathan, Chris and Bob here. Thanks for coming on the show. Hey, Nathan. Uh, Guys, thanks for having me on. So, Nathan, you've got a very interesting background. I read an interview where you said your greatest moment in golf was watching your wife, who was left-handed, hit a pure three-wood right-handed, and you knew right then and there that she could be a better golfer than you if she wanted to be. Talk about how that humbled you from then on. <laughs> oh, I haven't thought about that in a while. Yeah, so when I was uh, chasing my my dreams of trying to play professionally, which which crashed and burned uh, miserably when they made about $200 over about two years, I, I had uh, a number of practice sessions where she would sit in the cart and uh, she would read her book and watch me and I would ask her, hey, babe, hey, you know, how does this look? How does this look? And, uh, you know, she'd give me feedback on my swing and then one day I said, you got to hit a ball. I said, come on out here. Aren't you curious at all? And she went, no, not really. And I said, just try for me. Just try. And she, she's left-handed and she grabbed my right-handed clubs and it was, uh, oh gosh, what was it? I think it was a Wilson Fat Shaft three wood. Uh, I mean, for those of you who played years ago, remember that club? And she picked it up and, and just popped it out there probably 180, 190 yards, and just a beautiful swing. And I looked at her and I went, don't you want to play? And she went, no, I'm good. And she handed me back the club, sat back down with her book, and she was just as happy as she could be. And I remember just looking at her dumbfounded going, I, I don't get it. I just don't get it. And I went back to working on whatever I was working on. But, uh, yeah, that was uh, that was a funny story. I haven't thought about that in a while. I also read that your father had the greatest impact on your career because he encouraged you to give up baseball and focus on golf. Talk about the impact and influence your father's had on your career. Oh gosh, he, uh, that was probably one of the, looking back now, so I'm a dad now, and, uh, looking back at, at what my, my dad did to encourage me, that was probably one of the hardest things he ever did because, he, uh, baseball was my thing growing up. I mean, he used to come home from work and I would make him sit across the street and throw curveball after curveball and he would catch it in his knees or in his chest or in his face. And he, I remember him in his work clothes, just he would never go in and change first. But he would just sit there and let me just sling ball after ball. And he was my coach growing up and, uh, I just played a ton of baseball. I thought that was going to be it. And I remember, I was probably, I started playing, I guess, like real golf, I would say, later, probably 13, 14, really started to fall in love with it. And my parents would just, you know, drop me off at the golf course and I would practice and play non-baseball season. And I remember my sophomore year in high school, I didn't play golf my freshman year. My sophomore year, I um, I just made the varsity baseball team. So my dad was all excited and, you know, we were we were getting ready for it. And it uh, played at the, I went to a small school in San Diego and they played at the same time um, as the golf season, you couldn't play both. And I went to him, I said, dad, I said, I, I really think I want to give up baseball for golf. And he looked at me like I had three heads with the initial look on his face, but he could tell that I just, I loved golf and it was a passion that he could see. And he said, okay, he said, uh, I'll help you out and I'll support you. And, and then we were kind of off to the races, but he was, um, I think that was tough for him. I think it was really tough for him to see kind of his dreams of sitting in the stands with a hot dog and, you know, keeping all the stats in, the, in his book uh, to, to watch me try to play was crushed. But he got to 
sit in the stands and, and eat a hot dog and and watch me uh, shoot 84 and miss a cut. So it was <laughs> it was it was a trade off for him. And Nathan, I read that your favorite course in the world is Benita Municipal Golf Course because that's where you learned to play with your dad, your brother, and Woody Hayes. So you got to grow up playing golf with Ohio State's legendary coach Woody Hayes. Now that 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 might have been a uh, either I misspoke or something. So here's the story of Woody Hayes. My my dad went to Ohio State and uh, grew up. We grew up as uh, Buckeye fans on the West Coast, and I, I honestly didn't even know what a Buckeye was. I mean, I remember as a kid not liking Michigan, and I had no idea why. Uh, didn't understand why I had that prejudice towards those colors growing up as a kid. But my dad was a just a Buckeye through and through and he uh, was a huge Woody Hayes fan would, would quote him at different times and uh, he would quote him on the golf course too you know hey you know this and coach used to say this and things like that so um, I, I would say that he w- is, was a part of some rounds I know I never got to I never had to actually play with Woody um, but my dad always used to tell the story about how when he, he grabbed, uh, grabbed the guys by the face mask and I said well there's no face mask in golf dad so you can't, you can't grab my face mask <laughs> but we would go play at uh, again kind I was young, high school. We would go play over at Benita. The, uh, the the sunset rate was the best. You could get about four holes of golf in uh, between sunset when they would stop charging you to play, and you could walk. You wouldn't get a cart. And I remember the starter. I mean, we, my dad and I used to wear him out because he'd be like, fine, go out again. you know. And you could squeeze in like three or four holes. And I, I'll never forget that. It was always the sunsets and the trees would, uh, there were eucalyptus trees out there beneath. I remember the smell and just the long shadows. And every time I'm on a golf course now, when it just, the sun starts to set, it just throws me back to childhood. I mean, cause I, I remember that's my dad and I walking, playing three, four holes, um, uh, just when he got home from work. So that was, uh, I look back on that with very, very fond memories. I have questions for Nathan. And Nathan, I'll get back to your dad in a minute because he's just such a cool guy, and uh, I got to know him pretty well over the years uh, as he's been volunteering there. But uh, personally, I want to just thank you for the for the hospitality. I've been going out there, as you know, Nathan, probably almost 20 years, uh, 13 since you've been there, and from the people in the media center, the volunteers, the way it's, uh, and you're the first to say this, and you told us on the TV side a couple of years ago how uh, you just want to improve and find ways to improve. And every time I get the uh, questionnaire afterwards, uh, I don't have much to add because you guys do it as well as anyone, and and you've got the awards to prove it. So uh, thank you for that, first and foremost. And, again, your father, I've met him in the parking lot, Nathan, and he uh, drives the golf cart and gets me from the parking lot to the media center, and he's still uh, just such a, a vibrant guy and loves the game of golf, just loves being outdoors. He does. Dad's uh, he's great. It's funny because he um, he started volunteering years ago. This goes back to oh the Southern Farm. Now it's the uh, Sanderson Farms Championship in Jackson. Um, I was the tournament director there, and I remember it was the first tournament he came to. And he said, "Hey, I want to help out. You know, I want to do whatever you know, whatever I can." And, and so my he and my mom flew out. And so it was the night before, um, oh gosh, it was, I forget, Monday maybe of tournament week. And, uh, he goes, Hey, I want to do anything. You know, I'll do everything. And I said, All right, pops, here's the deal. I said, You gotta, I'm going to wake you up at 3.30. 
and we're going to go and, uh, you know, you can help me out. And he goes, okay, I'm in. And I go in there and I wake him up and he looked up and he goes, I thought you were kidding. Are we really getting up at three 30? I said, dad, we got to go. Come on. So he is he, a trooper. He gets up and it's dark and it's cold outside. And we go to the, uh, to the cart barn. And, um, I mean, a cart barn at a PGA tour event is a little bit like, a NASCAR race mixed with like a swap meet mixed with a um, just like a traveling carnival road show because everybody tries to talk their way into getting a golf cart and everybody's got a good reason why and everybody wants a cart and everybody's got a good excuse and hey I know so and so and you will get fed lines in the cart barn just to be talked out of a golf cart and you have to be careful so I, I, I said dad I said I'm putting you in charge of the cart barn here's a clipboard only these people get carts here's a radio if you need any help clip here and here's a flashlight because it was by that time it was like 4:15. and he looked at me and he went you're serious aren't you and I said I'm dead serious I got to go up to the clubhouse and start working on some stuff but you're in charge of the cart barn nobody except the people on this the list get carts and I drove away and the look on his face was one of the best looks in the world where he was looking as I was driving away going I thought he was kidding I really thought my son was kidding and so he just developed a love for volunteering and, and the event business. I mean, he his uh, his job was in uh, military recreation in San Diego, and so he uh, he knows events and he knows how to put events on. And so I mean, it's in his blood. But he thought I was kidding. And to this day, though, you know, that was oh gosh, probably 15 years ago when he started with me. He tries to come up and volunteer every year, and he uh, he loves driving that media shuttle and, and and having conversations on the way in. But he cut he cut his he cut his teeth at the cart barn in uh, Jackson, Mississippi, at 4 a.m. And uh, he'll tell you that story. He he uh, he still thought I was kidding. Just a great guy. And uh, Nathan, you and I talked a couple of years ago about at length about uh, how the travelers, when it's done, uh, it's uh, for people like yourself, tournament directors, uh, it's just you're already looking to the following year, maybe uh, just a few days after it. It's not like you guys just take a few months off and say, well, it's over and now we can celebrate. It's it's almost, it, well, it obviously is a year-round job, and uh, but uh, you must have to take some time off. I know you love the game of golf, Nathan. What do you do when the tournament finally does end? You know, that's that's a good question. I I sleep is the first thing. I mean, our, our team is, um, I mean, they're they're incredible. I mean, they... They will work. We, we probably go on about a 15-month, like each tournament we really start working on for about 15 months. So about three months before each tournament, we're already working on um, the next year because there's just there's a limit to what you can do. And there's just those last few months, you, you can't do certain things that you just have to start working on for the next year. So it really goes in about a 15-month cycle. Um, like about two months ago, we already, you know, launched our product for 2019 and what we're doing and, you know, kind of planning how things are going to be laid out, different new things that we're going to uh, we're going to uh, have for the fans, you know, the the following year as we're kind of springboarding off this year. But it's, uh, I mean, our team, I I would put them against anybody. And this is going on every week. I mean, every tournament team does this where they just work crazy hours. And we probably start, oh, gosh, I would say, you know, maybe six weeks out where we start working on the weekends. And then it really just goes goes through, and the last thirty days are crazy. And like the last three weeks, I mean, you're you know sleeping 
very little um, and just getting there. You, there's just not enough hours in the day. And uh, my family is tremendous. You know, they kind of know how, how it works in this industry. I mean, the pendulum swings very, very far towards the event and everything is just consumed by it. And it's, it's funny. It's not just the time. It's just mentally. Like I'll, I'll go home and I just my wife kind of you know sees the the blank stare in my eyes and just because you're just consumed by thinking about all the different things that are coming together. And they're very patient with me because post tournament I'm just really not in the best shape physically. You know you've kind of lost weight and you look exhausted and just you're just kind of worn out because you put everything into it. I mean we as as event managers we love these events. You see what it does to the community. You see the impact that it has, you see the pride on people's faces, and you feel this massive sense of responsibility that, hey, while this tournament is is under our care, we better make it as good as we can possibly make it. And so you're running off of adrenaline and excitement and just community support and pride and player excitement, and then it's just, you're just done at the end of it. And uh, it takes, takes a few weeks to recover and but uh, everybody kind of knows, you know, knows what it what it takes, and it's uh, it's like a sports season, you know. It's like you finish your, you know, football. It's like a 16 week season, and you have to kind of recover. But um, yeah, I mean, if you if you don't love it, it will wear you out. And uh, I would say probably half our interns every year figure out that they don't want to be in the event business and and go in a different direction. But it's um it's it's a pretty special uh, field that that we get to be in, and uh, that we love what we do. So Nathan, as executive director of of a you know PGA Tour event, and particularly the Travelers Championship, you have the challenge of being the next tournament following the U.S. Open. And typically, top players skip the tournament following a major, particularly a U.S. Open, because it's such a grind for the players to play in a tournament like that. How do you entice guys like last year's champion Jordan Spieth to come and play? You know, this this goes back to I mean, what what Travelers. So this goes back to probably '07 when when Travelers took over as title sponsor. They they came in with the attitude of of okay, we're going to focus on on what we are, not what we aren't. You know, we're going to focus on what we can change, what we can do. Like you know, what are the factors? Because that the week after the Open was the only the only week that was available at that time. And we had heard, you know, just, hey, the week after the Open is going to be tough. You'll never get top players to play there. They don't want to play the week after the Open. And Andy Bissett with Travelers and, and Jay Fishman at the time, the CEO, said, okay, let, let's figure out what that means. Like, why are people saying that? What is it? You know, is it the... Is it the date? Is it the golf course? Is it the time of year? Like, like what, what really is it? Let's, let's not just take that comment. Let's really dive into it. So we started looking at why the players didn't want to play the week after the Open. You know, I mean, the Open is just really intense. It's, uh, you know, it's obviously the courses are set up like uh, no other course that they play all year. It's just a different type of test. And so we wanted to be, uh, I don't want to say the antithesis of that, but we wanted to, we were aware of what the, the players, their families, their caddies, their trainers, their, their agents, we were aware of what they were coming off of. So we said, okay, let's, let's address that. So from the get go, we said, we're going to do a charter for the players, their families, everybody in their group. It's going to be a free charter from wherever the U.S. Open is. We're going to take, we're going to take care of them from the time the last putt drops. We are going to send a crew and meet them 
in the clubhouse parking lot of wherever the Open's being played, and we're going to have a shuttle, and we work with the USGA on this, to have a shuttle to take them to the, you know, the, the private charter. Their families can load on. They can drive their courtesy cars right there. They're going to get on. They're going to fly here. They're going to land here. Their cars are going to be on the tarmac. We're going to have gifts for their kids. We're going to have rental cars for the caddies right there. Like We're going to start the experience of us taking care of them right from the end of the U.S. Open. And then we just try to run that, run that experience out. You know, we really just try to take care of them while, while we're here. And tra- like I said, travelers looks at it like these are our customers. I mean, they, they, they treat the players and the whole tournament just like how they deal with their, their product. I mean, they have customers and that's how they view the players. So we try to look at the caddies as our customer. You know, how do we make our customer happy? What can we do to make their lives, you know, better and easier while they're with us? And what about the, you know, Bobby mentioned, what about the media? Okay, they're our customers. What do we do? And we just started chipping away at it. And little by little, year by year, it just is more and more details. And we actually had somebody about three years ago say to us, just because, you know, our field kept getting better and you start seeing guys like, you know, Justin Thomas was coming and, and Bubba and Jason Day and you had Dustin Johnson coming and Ricky and Sergio and, you know, you had all the players coming. People were like, wow, how did you get so lucky to get the week after the U.S. Open? <laughs> I just started <laughs> laughing going, oh, that that's great by how things have changed, you know, how, how things have changed. But we, we kind of have a, a saying internally where we don't feel like the, the date makes the tournament. The tournament makes the date. And that is something that we have tried to, to really take to heart to say, okay, what can we change? And then we're not going to, you know, we're not just going to let a date define us. We're going to, we're going to be the best that we can be. And we've been, you know, very fortunate that we have a title who, who allows us to, to do these things. And then you get, you know, I mean, whether the field's on the, or whether the open's on the West Coast or the East Coast, I mean, we've been very lucky. It just, you know, it hasn't mattered. You know, Webb, Simpson wins the Open years ago, and he comes here right after. And Lucas Glover wins, and he comes here right after. And, you know, you get the Open winners coming here. Justin Rose won, and he comes here the week after. Just, I mean, we've built relationships with these guys, and uh, we try to make it um, a very, very enjoyable event. And then you have a golf course that the players like. I mean, you can't, you can't, uh, you can't dismiss that. You know, I mean, the players, they look at golf courses that they like, that they can compete on. And uh, it's uh, we were very, very fortunate with the team at TPC River Highlands to have a very, very good golf course that sets up incredible for, for a PGA Tour event. And Nathan, like I mentioned in your intro, the ending to last year's tournament with Spieth pitching in from the bunker in Sundeth may have been the most fun finish in golf history, watching he and Michael Greller do the chest bump and all of that. What was it like for you watching how that unfolded? It still gives me the chills. I mean, I've seen that a thousand times, and it it runs up my spine uh, because it was I was standing to the um, uh, to the left of the green, right there, kind of where near Berger was, because he had missed the green. Both of them had in the playoff, and I was standing there, and, and it just got it was so silent when Jordan was standing in the bunker, and then he pops it out. And as it was rolling up and he's jumping up to see what happened, the the roar was so loud. I, I went to school. You mentioned I went to school at Auburn, and I've been a part of some pretty fun college football games and, you know, game-winning field goals and, you know, run backs 100 yards to, to beat Alabama, things like that. And so I've been a part of, 
some very, very loud sporting events. This was the loudest thing I've ever been a part of. And everybody was jumping and you could literally feel the earth moving. And I was looking around going, I, 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 just, I can't believe this actually happened. And then I immediately went to, oh my gosh, please don't rush the green. You know, I thought about <laughs> all these people just going crazy. And thank God, thank God Daniel still had to putt. Because if Berger would have putted first and then marked the ball and Jordan would have done that to end it in the playoff, I don't know what would have happened. I mean, because Jordan, after he does that and they celebrate and people are just going absolutely crazy all the way down the 18th, back down the 18th tee, uh, Jordan starts trying to calm people down because Berger still got a putt. And Berger almost made it. I mean, he was probably, I mean, it was 10, 12 inches away from going in. I mean, it wasn't, and he had a tough shot. But had it gone in reverse, I think it could have. It just would have been pandemonium, I and mean, the goalposts would have come down. I think, you know, and we, they would have found him, and they would have been carrying him through the crowds. But it was, uh, it was pretty special. It was what was what was crazy about it was you you had this moment in in sport where you have you had you had a grandfather jumping up and down, you know, in the gallery screaming and yelling all the way down to his son and then the grandson and like these three generations were all celebrating this amazing moment in sports. And then you had the athlete who performed it celebrating just as much as the fans were. So it was this moment where everybody got to share it. I mean, because you see great moments sometimes where the athlete might be, you know, not celebrating as much as the fan or whatever, but it was like everybody was in it together and it was so special for Jordan. And it was so special for our community. And Jordan talked about that media day. Um, he, uh, he spoke to us, uh, earlier this week and he said it was one of the most magical moments in, in his career. I mean, it was, uh, it was pretty special to be a part of. Bob, a couple more before we let Nathan go. Yeah, sure, Nathan. Just the uh, the current state of the course after another lovely New England winter. Do, do we see any changes in the course, Nathan? How are things going right now? You know what? Uh, the, like I mentioned earlier, the the superintendent Jeff Reich and, and David Crowder they do an amazing job with this golf course. And and the tour since it's a, a TBC property, I mean, they come up. I want to say three four times a year throughout the year to check on the condition of the course to make sure that it's it's going to be ready by June. I mean, this is a living breathing thing. So like they'll look at it, you know, in the in the late summer, and they'll come up in the fall, and they'll come and see it in the winter, and they're taking samples, and they're looking at dew rates, and they're looking at all these different things and how the roots coming in and you know what got frost what didn't what froze where and then how it came out of the spring so they're literally monitoring this thing year round and it is i mean they do it so that it is just in amazing amazing shape you know uh, around tournament time so it's coming out great and it's in, it's in really good shape but what's what i love about our golf course is you know i i was listening to um earlier on your show about technology and and things like that so this golf course, we, we played the week after the U.S. Open last year, and I think the U.S. Open course was almost a thousand yards longer than our course, and we played it closer to par than the U.S. Open did. I think the U.S. I think Brooks somewhere around 15, 16, if I'm not mistaken, and Jordan right. uh, won it in a playoff at 12, 
And so it doesn't, I mean, courses don't need to be just these massive, huge courses. I mean, if you set up a course right and you get the greens right and you, you know, you design a course that, um, that tests skilled players, I mean, it, it doesn't have to be this crazy long golf course. You can be tested. At, Rory said it actually, because Rory came for the first time last year. And he did an interview in like September after he played here and they were asking him, you know, about his favorite courses on tour or, you know, just around the world. And he said, you know, one of the, one of the courses I really enjoyed this year that I'd never played before, uh, was River Highlands, the Travelers Championship. And he goes into detail describing why. And I, it was the greatest interview because I was thinking, oh my gosh, I'd never thought about our course that way. But he was talking about certain sight lines off the tee and how he loved this and how he loved that and how he loved that. So, uh, that we are very very fortunate to have a uh, to have a course that the guys love and to be able to have it be built to where the theater that you know took place last year with Jordan uh, everybody got to see it and just the way it's designed like a stadium you know a good stadium course it was um it was it was a great stage for good theater and Nathan you've always finally you've always uh, always basically tried to get across to people that whether you like golf or not, you want the Travelers to be a very pleasurable experience for all spectators. And maybe you can tell us a few of the things that maybe uh, would be attraction to your so-called, maybe not golf aficionados this coming year. Sure. So we definitely, to your point, we have tried to make this event really a celebration for the community. You know, how do we make it be something that everybody can be proud of? And so we started an initiative to to really reach the non-golf fan and just started introducing a number of different things over the years. And so this started probably in, you know, 08, 09, but we started rolling out, you know, things like our concert series. So we have concerts at night and, you know, we bring in uh, country bands and we bring in, you know, uh, the big big bands that I would say, you know, not typically associated with, with golf fans. And then we started a, uh, we started a women's day. Um, this started as an idea, um, to say, you know what, let's, there's a lot of women out there that might not know how much they, they could possibly enjoy coming out to a tour event. So let's do a women's day. And so we did a big breakfast and then, you know, invited women out afterwards to enjoy, you know, a Thursday round of golf and had like reserved bleacher seating. And, you know, they could do tours of the Golf Channel studio on Thursday and, you know, discounts in the merchandise shop and, you know, all the kind of things like that. But our Women's Day program, it goes from 8 to 12 on Thursdays and it has grown in popularity so much. It is probably the hardest ticket to get um, at the golf tournament. So we have 700 tickets. And it sold out last year in 14 minutes. And we've had wow. speakers from Tory Burch, Martha Stewart. Um, I mean, it has become, in our market, one of the biggest networking events and just come out and have a great day. And then, and then all the people who are attending that go out onto the golf course. And a lot of them, it's the first time they've been, they've been out there. But yeah, that is probably one of the hardest tickets to, to get at the tournament. And then we have a whole military appreciation platform where we, we found two partners who really wanted to invest in our military programs. And so we do free admission for active, retired uh, veterans. We do free food and beverage all week for them. And we have a huge military pavilion that, that keeps growing every year. And uh, so, I mean, there's, there's, we, we have baby showers that we do, you know, for military moms whose husbands are deployed. We do, 
Um, I, so many things outside of just the golf tournament. And then uh, we introduced last year for the first time, we had a, a free venue for fans. So the general admission ticket holder could come out and actually go into a hospitality tent for the first time ever. And it was so popular, we built three more on property this year to where we want the general admission ticket holder to be able to come to our tournament and feel, you know, like they have a place, a hospitality venue they can go. And uh, it's, I mean, it's a very fun experience in our fan zone, the old driving range in the middle of the golf course, it's probably house. Oh, 16, 17 acres in the middle of the golf course has become our huge fan zone. And so we have um, all kinds of interactive games for kids. We have face painting. Kids can make necklaces. They, we built a nine-hole miniature golf course. There's bounce houses. There's a rock wall. And this is all right between 1 and 18. So Jordan's birding 1 and 2 to take a two-shot lead on Boo Weekly last year, and kids are climbing rock walls and getting their faces painted, you know, 40 yards from him and eating ice cream sundaes. And, you know, it's it's kids. I mean, they think it's a carnival. My kids for years thought that I just that I worked at the circus, you know, because they would come home with all these presents and their faces painted. They're like, wait, we just saw dad at work. What does he actually do? So um, (laughs) having our kids zone and our fan zone has been something that's grown in popularity over the years. So it's it's a big event for the community and for the state. And um, and uh, the golf tournament is part of it. But at the end of the day, like after all of that. At the end of the day, we feel really, really good because, uh, I mean, our charities are the biggest winners. Last year, we raised uh, a little over $1.7 million for about 165 charities. And to be able to to manage a, a professional sporting event and at the end of the day, being able to give all the proceeds back to your community is is a pretty special thing to be a part of. So, Nathan, let our listeners know, how can they stay up to date with all the great things that you're doing and get information about the tournament, whether it's online or it's over social media? Sure. Uh, TravelersChampionship.com is where we we obviously house a lot of different things. Uh, Twitter at TravelersChamp. Instagram, you can follow us, TravelersChamp. We try to make it as easy as possible. You can sign up. Um, you can volunteer. We, we actually we have a very, very good team that puts together a lot of fun social media, a lot of videos, a lot of interactive stuff that um, like Jason Day just committed today. And uh, there's some great videos. And if you go look um, uh, look at our, our Twitter feed, we, we do a video. We try to do a video for almost all of the guys who have, have committed. So we, we put some good content out there. It's a lot of fun. And uh, you, can, uh, you can follow along or just come join us here in, uh, here in about a month. Well, Nathan, thank you so much for taking time out of your night to come and be a part of the show, being generous with your time. We hope you'll come back and do it again sometime, share more of your stories and your insights with us because you've been fantastic. Well, listen, thanks for the time. Appreciate you guys reaching out. Thank you. Hope to see you soon, Nathan. Nathan, take care. All the best to you and your family. We'll catch up sometime soon. Thank you very much, you guys. Keep doing the good work. Take care. Thank you. That is Jason Groove, and again, he is the executive director for the Travelers Championship. Bob, great suggestion for a guest. He's fantastic. Well, again, I have as much respect for him as I do for anybody in the business, Chris, because I I see it up close of what he does, and and the uh, fruits of his labor are just incredible. He's been doing it for 13 years now, and like you said, what's going under the radar, Chris, that's the signature sporting event here in Connecticut, and they've raised uh, close to $15 million for charities during Nathan's reign, and uh, again, uh, the Hole in the Wall Gang uh, charity will be the main winner this year 
Uh, but they do so many good things, and it's a community thing more than anything. You know, again, we hear about Spieth, and we hear about a lot of different things, but it's uh, it's a very charitable undertaking, and that's probably why it gets so uh, well attended attendance-wise, Chris, because it appeals to everyone. And, uh, again, uh, it's one of my best four years, four days of the year. And, uh, you know, Bob, as you talk about the charitable donations, and, again, he said $1.7 million to 165 different charities in the area. So, you know, as as we do on the football side, right, our spotlight on the positive, this seems like something spotlight on the positive worthy for uh, all the great things that they're doing for the community there in Connecticut. Oh, it's huge, yeah, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk about that in the future. But, uh, yeah, First on the Tee is another charity, charity that's done remarkably through the Travelers' uh, uh, efforts. And, and basically, Chris, the Travelers, again, is it's, it's a basically, this is a charitable golf tournament. Yeah, you could see the winner pocketing a million dollars, but, again, the proceeds go to charity, and uh, that's what the Travelers are all about as far as when they took it over. Uh, 11 years ago, they saved the tournament, believe it or not. It, it wasn't looking good there. And for, for what Nathan has done, Chris, since Travelers have taken it over, from a tournament that was close to just literally dying off uh, to being one of the more popular ones on tour, now they have four of the top ten players in the world coming this year, and it's going to be a lot of fun to watch. I don't know if we can top what happened last year, but guess what? It's still going to be fun. Yeah, no doubt. Good for you for being a part of it for the, the many years that you have. And, and again, thanks to, uh, to Nathan for coming on the show. And, uh, the, the story is at the top about his father and his wife. Fantastic stuff. So hopefully we get the privilege Great. of following up with Nathan a little bit later on this summer. All right, folks, it is time for Bob and I to put a bow on this episode of Next on the Tee. We want to send out our sincere thanks again to Richard Zokel, Michael Verska, and Nathan Groove for joining us tonight. And, Bob, special thanks to you for not only being a part of the show tonight, coming over and doing it on the golf side, but uh, for your work to get Nathan as part of the show. Fantastic stuff out of you, as always, my friend. Oh, if I in any way I can help out, Chris, you know, I'm here, and that was uh, to add the local co- connection and uh, to get it, get the word out there on Next on a T. It, it's a great show, and, again, you and I will talk Thursday, correct? Yes, we will. We'll do it on Thursday night, Tailgate, and I hope you'll come back and be a part of the golf show more often as well, my friend. Oh, sure. This coming Thursday, we, we certainly look forward to, you know, joining, you know, have all of you joining us as we do uh, Thursday night tailgate every Thursday night from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern time. You can stream Bob and I and our five guests uh, every week there. It's uh, available right here on Blog Talk Radio and that show like this one. Also available as free podcasts on iHeartRadio and over on Podbean. Every week on Thursday Night Tailgate, we're joined, like I say, by five NFL legends who come on, share their stories about their playing days and share their insights into what's going on around the NFL now. Plus, like I alluded to a moment ago, we highlight two players doing great things in their communities in our Spotlight on the Positive segment. So please check that out. You can find Thursday Night Tailgate online at ThursdayNightTailgate.com. This show, next on the T, uh, net. You can stream or download any of our archive episodes from free uh, by going on either site or going over on Podbean. Bob, thank you, my friend. Look forward to catching up with you again in a couple of days. And to uh, everybody listening in tonight, thank you so much. We know you got a lot of shows and podcasts to listen to. We really appreciate the fact that you are making Next on the T one of them. Until next week, hit them straight, my friends. You've been listening to Next on the T with Chris Mascaro, where PGA and LPGA pros and top instructors and media 
Motivation with Amazon Music. You're still in bed? Didn't you go running? Oh, I overslept. I'll go tomorrow. I'm getting in the shower. Alexa, set an alarm for 5 a.m. tomorrow to Hard Rock Music. Okay, I'm up. The right song exactly when you need it. Amazon Music, the simplest way to listen to the music you love. New customers start your 30-day free trial at AmazonMusic.com. Renews automatically cancel anytime. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.